Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly people, rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I am here. I am back in the saddle. I'm feeling quite good. It is actually an afternoon recording, which is somewhat unusual for us. And by us, I mean Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. He is here in the room in our different studio. I can tell you about how Al Sharpton is the responsible for us being here. Michael Moynihan, who's a national <laughs> correspondent. He's, I think Al Sharpton would say he's an interloper. Tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and of course, our very good friend, Anthony Fisher, is the politics editor at Insider. Are you sure? It's, it's Insider, right? It's not, it's not the it's Daily Insider. Beast. And no. the job is is at politics editor, not yeah. hack. Yeah, hack. I mean, it I might just, be. Wanna, it might be that he's I the hack journalist from the Daily Beast, but I'm not sure. All I'm right. pretty sure it's politics editor right. at Insider. Uh, but I'm delighted to be here with you, gentlemen. Again, it's been a little while since we've all been in the room together. I just finally bought a place in Brooklyn, New York. Something that I've been trying to do for three years, and I've never known anyone who has tried so hard to give themselves cervical cancer. Yeah, which is what I did, and I don't even have a cervix. Yeah, you do. I don't. Yes, you do. But I do have cervical cancer, and it's called homeownership in New York City. It is awful. I don't know if there's anything worse on earth than owning a home in New York City, and I just paid a small fortune to be a part of this exclusive club, and I'm exhausted. I don't want to talk about it anymore. The problem is that the wrong people have money in New York, (laughs) (laughs) and you're part of the wrong people, and so you're being punished for it. And I also want to point out that you just use use that in a past tense. Past tense. Twitter clap emojis in conversation. I've never seen anyone yeah. do that before. Did I do that? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You look like a demented seal. <laughs> I don't He's, like the you also, house owning. You also kind of look like seal. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Ah. Better complexion. Mm-hmm. Pulling yeah. supermodels. Yeah. Yeah. Pull, exactly. Boom. Exactly. You got, a ni- you, got a ni- you got a nice skin, though. Yeah. He's, he's got not, yeah, he not has some, nice. some challenges. Yeah. So, <laughs> Camille has housing rage that he's not supposed to mm. talk about, which is pretty pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I saw the house, though. Leading, did you? Yeah. Oh, you got invited or you, I, well, you broke in? He was, he was, he was nearby. Like, you guys are invited. Yeah. yeah. He's nearby. It's a nice house. Nobody. Please don't say the address. You, Matt Welch. Do you want me to say the street? Nope. Don't say anything <laughs> about it. Um, this is very Ta-Nehisi Coates of you. Keeping yeah, your address, is, your Brooklyn address. Is it yeah. actually close? I have more to fear than him. <laughs> Isn't it kind of oh, close to where he was shopping, too? Jeez, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. He was shopping in Queens. <laughs> yeah. That's where Camille lives. <sighs> so yeah. Camille has housing rage. Uh, <clears throat> Fisher, we're recording this on a Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day. Mm, yeah. Uh, Fisher has spent the, most of the morning being called a hack lefty, nobody uh, libertarian. And from the Daily Beast. Mm-hmm. And apparently we're all lefties as well. And this is a hack lefty podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Makes sense. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, and then uh, Moynihan's had some friends in law enforcement. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Should I talk about this? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Did you have it coming, this Mike? <laughs> I mean, obviously. Yeah. They always have it. It was always, it was going to be something. They're always at it. It was weird than what it was, <laughs> you know? So all what, right, all right. I, I got happened? I got arrested last week. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I got arrested in New York City. So stupid. Like oh the worst God. way of getting arrested too. So all the lawyers out there that 
want to help me formulate this case against the city. Um, the brief version, there is no brief version. This is the briefest version I can get is that I was driving a rental car back to the rental car dealership or whatever you call it, store, <laughs> shop uh, in Greenpoint. And um, I decided to go down. There's two ways to go. I went, I chose the wrong one that had the lion behind the door. And so I'm going down Kent Avenue, uh, beautiful Sunday, million people out. And there was a police checkpoint, a safety checkpoint. Oh. Hmm. Right? Have you heard of this? I, yeah, sure. I didn't realize there was a checkpoint in this story, too. Yeah, checkpoint. Stop and frisk yeah. has come for the honkies of <laughs> South Williamsburg. <laughs> They've shifted it over. And they Looking for uh, measles. I got my daughter in the back. He's like smoking a lucky strike, you know. <laughs> everybody's happy. We and they they wave me in and they say, We're doing a safety checkpoint. Want to see if everybody has a seatbelt on? Obviously, both both did. My daughter's and if the car is inspected, it obviously is. It's a rental car. And um so <laughs> I might have started making a Fourth Amendment argument somewhere. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I might have. Just I'm not sure. Early in the conversation. <laughs> maybe early in the conversation. Yeah, okay. the, body, the body cams will prove that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if we can get those. And so um, he comes back uh, to the car, uh, a guy in the white shirt. Which apparently the guy in the white shirt's the bad one. He's the captain. <laughs> and, uh, and he is like, uh, did you pay this bicycle ticket? This is New York. I have a $400 ticket on a bicycle. And I was like, yeah, I paid that. I paid that. It was a little late. And he was like, oh, really? okay. And then he goes back for like another 10 minutes. And he comes back and he's like, do you have any friends in this neighborhood? And I was like, I don't know, do you guys want to fucking hang out or something? Tecate <laughs> <laughs> and like sit in the sun? And he's like, uh, I mean, you call one of your friends. And I'm like, I don't know. So a friend of mine who doesn't live in the neighborhood uh, or lives close by, I, uh, I, I called and uh, because I knew at that point what was happening. My daughter starts crying a little bit. Um, a uh, coward. Uh, crying a little bit. And um, I go inside the car. I'm like, hey, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So I go back in I, and they say, hey, um, you know, we'll do this not in front of your daughter. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You're kidding me. You're kidding me. <laughs> Jeff Garland. I was like, yeah, this is crazy. I'm so. And I'm like, OK, I'm trying to like remain calm. I'm like I'm racking my brain. I have no idea. No clue. I mean, I released that girl that was in the basement. Yeah, no, and it was she, half consensual. Yeah, I mean, she only spoke Khmer. I mean, I was like, how am I going to... So I get... So they... The, my friend uh, comes um, not very happy looking and to take, takes my daughter away and then they um, ask me to empty my pockets, put the, hand on, the hands in the car and uh, they cuff me in oh. front of in front of like all of Brooklyn, uh, sunning themselves in Bushwick Inlet Park uh, Kent on on Sunday, and I'm like you. And um, still no explanation up to this point. I think there was an explanation at this point. I don't recall. The uh, explanation was drum roll, please. The explanation. <laughs> this is a good one. It's a good one. Um, I had an unpaid speeding ticket from 21 years ago. <laughs> in, I'm not kidding. In New York? In, in New York. Yeah. So apparently I have a suspended license and I'm like, look, I don't have a New York license. I just renewed a Massachusetts one because I'm lazy and I don't drive much. So I get it online. They send it to me. And he's like, doesn't matter. We, you haven't paid this ticket 21 years ago. We assign you a number and then we suspend a license that doesn't exist. Um, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't Mirandized, you know, apparently you don't have to be Mirandized in such situations. Hmm. And I was put in the car and then, uh, went to the police station and I'm like, all right, I pay this stupid ticket and they want to be all tough and dramatic and put handcuffs on me. That's fine. So I get to the station. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to pay these guys and see how much do I have. I'm looking at my wallet here and they're like, um, keep the cuffs on me and then put me into another room. 
And um, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm a diabetic, and so I need to take insulin, maybe. And like, hey, if you need to take insulin, we're going to have to drive you to the hospital. And uh, Oh, Jesus Christ. Because uh, you can't have a, a needle, and that's like a weapon. So if you need to do that, we're going to have to like, you know, and you'll be like literally handcuffed to a hospital bed. No joke. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, wait, I'm going to be handcuffed to a hospital because of a fucking ticket from 1998? <laughs> Bill Clinton was out. The Lewinsky scandal was just breaking. <laughs> You're kidding me. I was probably driving to figure out what was happening with Monica Lewinsky. That's how old this is. Like literally, they're going to handcuff your thing. And so I get my blood sugar is on my phone. So I'm like, what do I do? And the guy's like, can you just rattle the cage? I'm like, the fucking cage? What are you talking about? Take your shoes off. Okay, take my shoes off. Take the laces out. Take what? your belt off. I'm like, they want you to hang what? yourself. Well, I mean, I wanted to after a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, that's no, no, nothing. Take that out. No fun. Everything. Um, a fingerprinted <laughs> mugshot, and they open the cell door, <laughs> and there's a guy in there who has blood on his face and a huge fucking welt, and there's like bloody sutures on the ground, <laughs> and they open the door, and then they open the door, and I'm like, can I do it, Camille? <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah, no, you, you totally can. Yeah. Well, I just said what he said. He, no. He just opened the door. He's like, he's like, yo, motherfucker. <laughs> Literally, he was like, it was crazy. He was like, I didn't do shit, man. I've been here for 12 hours, motherfucker. What you doing? And, and, and then I go and I, I'm sitting. I, now I'm left in there with this guy. And I'm like, uh, you know, I become like the Eddie Murphy white guy. I'm like, uh, very nice to see you, sir. Uh, what are you in for? You can't ask that question because your answer is such a pussy answer. You can't be like, what are you here for? He's like, uh, you know, I like fucking killed a family. I'm like, what about you? He's like, I was riding a bike. <laughs> or, or I forgot to pay a ticket in the 90s when you weren't even born. So uh, this guy, this guy, I'm stuck in there with this guy. And then another guy comes in uh, who <laughs> who was selling guns at a Taco Bell. Which is pretty good. He was accused of selling guns. Oh, no, he told me. He was selling guns. <laughs> I'm a fucking I'm a fucking jailhouse snitch. Just, they wanna, they wanna, they wanna, I'll roll. Like, but the funny thing is I'm at this point I become. <laughs> I've been in a couple of hours. I was in there nine hours, by the way. Nine. Sweltering, fetid hours. cell for nine hours. And you're you're kind of you're having seizures at this point. Uh, no, they didn't. Seizures? I didn't fed or anything like that. I was just like my, I made sure that my blood sugar was. I I stuffed a bunch of things in my mouth before they put handcuffs on me. Seriously, I had like sugar in my mouth. So I was like I was high. So I'm fine. I'm fine-ish. But I'm in there. And then there's a change at one point where I become Edward James almost <laughs> with the baseball bat and I'm like teaching the kids. And this guy who's like a gang guy comes in, he's out of his mind, out of his mind, so out of his mind. And the other guy's like, yo, man, you fucked up. And he's like, I'm, uh, I ate uh, four Xanax bars, one of closing in. <laughs> Four Xanax bars and three Percocet. And I'm like, geez, you're a fucking joy to be around. This guy's dripping down the wall. I'm just sitting there frozen. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I don't, he's like, yo, man, I don't know what happened. It's just like, oh, God, cops everywhere, like 20 cops. And I'm like, all right, I gotta get, I gotta just fucking intervene here. I'm like, oh, you don't know what happened. And he's like, no, nah, man, it's, it's all me. And I was like, 20 cops? Happened to be the fucking Taco Bell in Greenpoint. I'm like, dude, your buddy flipped on you. And he's like, what? Flipped <laughs> <laughs> on you. When, when did the cops come? He's like, yo, man, my boy went up to get some food. I'm like, oh, we have to put some signal. <laughs> signal in the 20 of them swarmed you. And you're in jail now. And, and the gun is, you're going away. And then he's like, yeah, yeah. The other guy says, yo, man, that's a hood code violation. No joke. <laughs> Verbatim quote. Yeah. And then they start talking about how they should kill him. Did you, <laughs> no! did you not consider the fact that 
snitches get stitches or much much worse when you were talking no I, but I tell you they, they bring the guy upstairs you're to doing question your whole dangerous no no they, 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 <laughs> they bring the guy upstairs to question him right he comes back down and he's like yo man tell him nothing and, and I was like you didn't tell him not, not, nothing nothing really and he's like you I like one I was like nothing he's like no I was, he's like man you can't snitch I was like man start snitching because <laughs> you already got snitched on motherfucker you got snitched on and I'm learning all this language they're like oh man you can do a bullet in Rikers apparently six months in Rikers is a <laughs> all this, he's like, all uh, like he had like ten grand in cash on him, and it reminded me. Uh, I was saying this to people, it reminded me of that great documentary on Netflix, The Seven Five, about the corrupt seventy fifth precinct in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, I think it was Michael Dowd, says. Um, you know, the most money in uh, a city is always in the poor neighborhoods. <laughs> it's just like guys running around with just cash on him. He had five grand in cash. And then that was um, the one final bit I'll tell you. It actually was so much crazier than this, by the way, was the um, then the homeless guy came in and uh, the homeless guy <laughs> was arrested for getting some food from the shelter um, and going, taking the food across the street into the 7-Eleven and putting cheese on it. And then walking out. The pump, you know, they got a cheese yeah, pump. Yeah, cheese pump. And the guy's in there, and he's got no cheese. <laughs> and he's like, yo, man, we running for some cheese. And then he's like, <laughs> he's like, yo, man, I collared you 35 times. It's not for fucking cheese. <laughs> and, then the, and then the other guy jo- joins in, and it's like hilarious, like racial stereotypes everywhere, except for me. Um, there's a guy who's like an Italian guy from, from, uh, from like Staten Island. He's like black hair, and he talks like this, and he's fucking, he's been on the force for 25 years. <laughs> and he's like, I can't believe they popped you to me. And I'm like, I don't know, does that arrest me? That's what you mean? <laughs> the other guy's like, yo, man, Stallone. Stallone, <laughs> get the fuck out! Stallone, and I'm like, I'm trying to get out, I'm like make friends with people, and these guys have done so much time in prison, they just don't care. And the guy literally told me, he's like, Yeah, I don't, I don't care. I'll go down to Central Booking. It's fine. I'm not gonna give him any more money for for bail. I'll never get it back. I'm like, yeah, get it back. He's like, yeah, but you commit a crime. Like, dude, don't commit a crime. Like, what is wrong with you? Everybody in there was guilty, by the way. All of them told me, Include, including, including you. you. Uh, well, technically, yeah. <laughs> apparently I didn't pay his speeding ticket. So I was in jail for night. And, and by the way, it was like my miniature version of Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. I was going crazy at the end of it. <laughs> because you can't talk to these people about anything. They literally have a vocabulary that, that it starts circling itself after about five minutes. And the guy started telling me the same fucking stories. The ba- there was a bike thief who uh, was caught in the middle of the night with one of those tools to cut uh, um, U-locks. And he, the guy came, he's like, he's like, yo, man, I was cutting my friend's bike. And he's like, your friend's bike? Where's your friend? He's like, oh, man, he ran. He has some weed in his pocket. Like, Why don't you call your friend and get him to come down here? He's like, man, he won't come down here. And it was like, then he was like, man, it was an old bike. And he's like, I thought it was your friend's bike. He's like, it was my friend's old bike. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, guys, you are so bad at this. And everybody had been in jail. And that's when it made sense to me. You guys all are in jail because you deserve to be. <laughs> wow. So, so it started out as a Fourth Amendment protest. Yeah. And it ended up with you being Heather McDonald. Yes. Yes. It ended, well, actually, it ended up with me being Mumia. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know. Heather McDonald doesn't have that sort of sympathy. So I was, I was looking at this All the today. folks who are locked up who deserve it. Yeah. Well, I was looking at this today and I was Googling some of the stuff today because I got to go to court, actually. And, um, you know, I'm going to go in there like fucking Matlock strutting in front of the bench. But, um. <laughs> I was like, you know, this is clearly there's no probable cause to stop me. This is a search and seizure issue. And then there's this real gray area about this in in a couple of Supreme Court uh, uh, precedences that precedences. I don't know. <laughs> but they're t- saying I, this is apparently something you can do. Other people say you can't do it. But it was clearly a pretext just to see if they could pop people on tickets, unpaid this, that and the other. They're like, you know, I'm looking if you have your seatbelt on. And then they're like, can I get your license? 
Yeah, Judge Andrew Napolitano, uh, our friend, mm -hmm. uh, friend of the podcast, uh, has written for Reason uh, back when I was editor about eight eight years ago uh, a, a long piece about how um, uh, uh, checkpoints on bridges yeah. between New Jersey or Staten Island and New York, whatever, um, are unconstitutional according to his reading. And as of the time that he wrote it, it hadn't really fully been vetted Supreme Court wide, mm -hmm. right? Like totally. Uh, I mean, the ACLU was obviously challenged stop and frisk and a bunch of lower courts, at least if my memory is uh, foggy memory is, is, is kicking into gear. But it's just kind of clear in some of these checkpoints, just like, OK, uh, I will get someone on something uh, here. And if it's going to be Moynihan, uh, you know, uh, under my, Monica Lewinsky, then. Yeah, well, I mean, it's <laughs> like these guys are talking to me in jail. I don't know how true it was, but it seemed to kind of true is that um, right by the, 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 the lockup was that big binder. Because, you know, everything's like super analog. It's funny. They have like an iPad. They're like, oh, wait, I just found something you did in 1998. And then when I get back, I'm like, how do I get out of here? They're like, well, we uh, sent a fax to Albany. on no, no joke. On Sunday, to see if you can get a desk appearance ticket. And rather than going down to central uh, booking in downtown Brooklyn and be before a judge there, you're probably to spend the night. And I'm like in a, in, a, in a cell of like 35 people. That was the place they were protesting for the inhuman, that uh, oh, really? inhumane conditions. Yeah. Mm, so they're like, and the, the other guys were like, yeah, man, this, this is a nice log up. I'm like, really? <laughs> He's like, oh, Greenpoint's nice. I'm like, really? I'm like, no, I don't want to go down there. So I finally got out at like eight o'clock. But they're all saying like, these guys get overtime. It's a big overtime book. And the guy had clearly been on his shift for a while when he popped me. And he was still there when I left. And he's getting some overtime to get me out of there at, at 8 p.m. when I got pulled. I got pulled over at 11 a.m. So yeah, it was crazy. Keeping I mean, it was really, really insane. I'm like, I'm literally getting arrested with tight cuffs on my hand for forgetting to pay a speeding ticket when I was probably. I mean, the worst offense, guys, is that I assume when I was driving, then I was probably on drugs, and <laughs> you missed it. <laughs> you know, now I'm gonna pay a speeding ticket for it, but you know, nice. Anyway, do they really not have to read you your rights when they take you into custody in a search situation like that? Uh, apparently, there is a a. Stipulation that if um, I'm not going to be like interrogated, I looked this up. I mean, a lawyer can write in and correct me on this, but I was not uh, Mirandized. No, wow. And if I was, if I if I was not expected to be interrogated or something, you 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 apparently don't have to be read your Miranda rights. Yeah, and and uh, I remember uh, we've had a couple of meetups, uh, like uh, meet reason. Uh, fans in Seattle and Austin and other places like that, um, and you and especially when it's not uh, one of the big cities like the places that the Fifth Column should do live um, podcasts from. Um, people, you get fans who've been following you or who've been following your work for a really long time. And whenever it's a cop, uh, I always ask, like, what's the thing that we get wrong? Because we obviously write about mm. police stuff a lot, uh, and uh, and. Almost every single case, I remember there's a guy in particular from, from Seattle coming up, which is like, you people think that Miranda matters. Like you, you think that there's this sort of like suite of rights that are in play, you know, with 95 percent of what goes on. Almost all policing has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Mm. Like uh, uh, that, like where, where it actually comes into, where, you know, where policing happens, your fancy rights talk is, is silly and it's not applicable and it's even not challenged. I mean, in my sense, I was like, <clears throat> look this up because it was my version of, you know, those signs at like the 7-Eleven that says your purchase is free if you don't get a receipt. That's kind of what I was trying to do. I was like, you didn't give me a receipt. You didn't give me the Miranda. Like, get me out of here. But it's not, apparently is not applicable in this situation. So mm -hmm. I, I do, though, um, strongly disagree <laughs> with, <laughs> with randomly, randomly running my information, pulling me over for an unreasonable amount of time and then keeping me in literally in jail. I've never been to jail in my life. And separating you from your my daughter. seven-year-old, eight-year-old yeah, yeah, daughter. Yeah, yeah, eight-year-old. She thought it was funny later. 
Yeah. She said, she, did, did your wife tell you that she, when she saw her, she immediately went over and said, did you hear my father got arrested? And like told, like told her a really the whole story. long, hilarious story. Yeah, long story. story. Yeah. Like she was punching it good too for an eight-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I went to pick her up at school and she's like, you know, I told everyone at school. I'm like, <laughs> did you not do that? Like, you know. Was Sean King impressed? Yeah, <laughs> he's definitely not a parent at the school that I. Oh. I think he unblocked me. By the way, really? oh. I think he must have seen me at school and was like, "Man, that guy's fucking amazing." I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I think he unblocked me. I'm still blocked by Roxanne Gay though. Oh, what are you gonna do? Yeah, that's too bad. So that was a long story, but the other the purpose of it is if any people out there are lawyers, yeah, slide into the DMs. <laughs> what do I do? Hundred dollar bill, slide in the DMs. Fuck well, yeah. I don't know what we should do today because it's been I've had. A couple of very long weeks. I'm kind of up on what's going on in the world today. <laughs> you have no. You idea. don't but tell the really. audience that. I am. I you am fake it. Just. I mean, I'm bleary eyed. I've got a flight to catch tonight. What are we doing? Here? Where are you, are, are you, you going? Are you so? Uh, it's just, a, a company retreat, but it's on the other side of the country. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so you're cool with Dave Rubin just talking shit about our boy Anthony Fisher? Well, look, I don't want to go long on this Dave Rubin <laughs> business, and I don't think Fisher really wants to talk about it very long either. In fact, we've talked about the piece that you wrote, Fisher, for the Daily Beast. What was it? Almost a year ago? It was about now? a year ago, and we actually kind of, we, we talked about it before it even came out, so we yeah. didn't really do a deep dive on it, and I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of yeah. time on this, but um, it has been a thing. People have questioned my motives, um, and my motives were simply Here's a, a, a person very famous in the political uh, new media ecosystem who is supposedly uh, speaking my language, you know, talking about free speech, talking about heterodox ideas, talking about diversity of thought. This was a good friend of mine who's a listener of this show, introduced me to the show, uh, The Rubin Report. Mm-hmm. And when I started watching it, I was like, I don't feel like there's a lot of substance here. But then I started seeing certain interviews where it's not about, uh, and, the, and my objection is not about talking to unsavory people. Huh? I mean, you absolutely can and should talk to unsavory people, but there's a way to do it. And it doesn't even have to be a haranguing. You don't have to badger somebody you disagree right. with, right, right. Uh, but you can explore them with a legitimate curiosity. What I didn't think was, um, I, I didn't. I didn't consider the idea that you c- can call people who are literal white nationalists or avowed identitarians part of the new center. Mm-hmm. That was what I objected to. I, I hope that's not the truth. I hope they are not actually part of the new center. I don't. I mean, <laughs> the new center is up uh, for a lot of people to define. But this yeah. is this is something that uh, Dave Rubin hammers home repeatedly yeah. uh, for uh, for years. And when I merely asked to discuss it because he's all about ideas and not attacking people. Uh, I was, he was, he deflected from months saying, please send me written questions. And after it was clear, he was not going to sit for a recorded interview either in person or via, via Skype. I did send some of these questions, some of which were real under the belt, you know, questions like where did you perform comedy and who can I ask to vouch for it? Uh, he said that you seem to have a, an agenda, and then he <laughs> sent something called the Journalistic Code of Ethics, which I've never seen a journalist actually share or use or cite, um, but apparently it's a, it's a thing. Well, well I, he's I, not I a hack journalist. I, yeah, I'll say this. Is, that, that, that I suppose this could at some point bridge into a Julian Assange discussion, mm. but he's not a journalist. Mm. I mean, I, if we've expanded mm. the definition of journalism so far that if you, you sit in front of a microphone talking to somebody, mm. that that means you're a journalist. I think that you're, you're an opinion monger. That's fine. You can yeah. even be an opinion journalist. Or an interviewer. Or an interviewer. That's fine. But this idea that he has some sort of journalistic ethics, and ethics, by the way, are usually about how to treat sources and how one sort of excises bias from their reporting. 
Uh, he doesn't do any of that. I mean, or is he saying that you do and you're not adhering? To I don't know. That, I don't know that he was. Sorry. To be clear, this came up again. Oh, yeah. uh, it should, became news. I guess he's just talking about you as a journalist today, but. because Kathy Young, who's also uh, someone who's known to all of us, wrote a piece for Quillette um, saying. Uh, I don't know, I forget what the headline is, but like the internet, intellectual dark web, which is this kind of amorphous term to describe uh, various people, including some that we've had on this podcast, like mm-hmm. uh, the great Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, um, uh, which is a you should go back and listen to it if you haven't, um, that uh, they need to kind of clean house and, and uh, stop playing footsie so much with kind of alt-right white identitarians, I think was the takeaway, having not read it, but just – seeing tweets on it. And so that came up and Ruben said, uh, you know, LOL, she has to go, uh, uh, all libertarians basically like me. She had to go find some obscure Daily Beast hack named Anthony Fisher to find a single libertarian who's ever had an objection with me. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and, and that was basically ah. it. And the thing is my, you know, th- so that's why it came up today. That's why we're all joking around that I'm a hack that's the Daily Beast, even though I never actually worked at the Daily Beast. He looked at us we like can, soliciting. Yeah, no, it's yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah no, it's it's all uh, jokes. no, you guys, you guys, you guys would never say that. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the reason that it's all popped up, it's a, it's a year-old article. Um, people have oh. uh, cited it in our mentions, um, but there's really nothing else to say about it. It's, uh, to me, it's all out there. It was a thoroughly researched article. I spoke with people who are critics of him. I spoke with people who are in the intellectual dark web. I spoke with Sam Harris. I spoke with Christina Hoff Summers. I interviewed his me- quote-unquote mentor, Larry King. I reached out to several other people in the intellectual dark Sounds web. Sounds like journalism. I vision. did everything I could to get yeah, every— Except you know, follow the code of ethics. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. So, so I don't, and I don't think— I mean, I, I don't think it's a violation of the code of ethics to talk to, talk to Larry King. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Ruben actually was citing uh, the journalistic code of ethics to prove that he had yeah, ethics. No, 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 I know. But I think he does also. Does he refer to himself as a journalist? No, he doesn't. He wouldn't even go there. He, what he, he'll, he'll always say whenever he's called out on an inconsistency or rank ignorance is, I'm just about the ideas. Don't, don't, don't pester me about details and don't pester me about whether or not I've done any research at all on my interviewers. I'm just about uh, interviewees. I'm just about the ideas. So we've been asked multiple times now by many, many listeners to the podcast if we will have him on the show. Um, because sure, there's, absolutely. There's the perception that there is some persistent beef between like our camp, whatever that is, and like him or whatever. I would totally have dude on the show. I don't think he would come. And without getting into the specifics of your piece, um, and I, which I think is fair to, to call it an indictment. There's a lot of critical questions in there that are totally fair to ask. Um, not because of the specific indictments, but because I just don't think I've ever seen him engage with people who are strenuously and seriously critical of him. I don't know that he's ever done that. It's, an, it's interesting and you maybe, say that. Maybe he would do that with us here, but I doubt it seriously. So I don't think he'll accept the invitation. And I suspect to the extent he responds to this at all, it will be with some sort of underhanded, snide remark about how we're jealous, impugning our motives and not addressing the actual substance of the charge against you. And if the substance of the charge against you is that you happen to cavort with some very dodgy characters and you have endorsed them in ways that are very strange, you might want to address that. It's an opportunity, dude, to clarify the record or it's an opportunity to dodge and to talk shit and to use ad hominems in response to the people who are asking serious questions of you. You could have gone much harder. You could have used sharper knives. You didn't. And I think that's the job. So I appreciate that. Am I still a hack? 
Yes. No worst. I think the, the problem that I have with, with that guy is I subscribe to his podcast and I think I maybe, because I just never listened to it. It's always the same thing as far as I can tell. It's like, you know, look, identity politics stuff is irritating. We talk about it. But if they, we talk about it quite a bit here. Mm-hmm. But if it's all you talk about, it's just so tedious. It's reactionary. And this is yeah. something that we've I've maybe talked about once or twice here. But like um, it, that is ultimately, <clears throat> for me, always the, the danger of the mm-hmm. intellectual dark web. And we engage on this with Brett and Heather mm-hmm. very much. So here <clears throat> it's always for me. Part of the danger that's lurking, and I don't think it's it's ever uh, really completely expressed in things like heterodox academy and whatnot. You can look around the world, <clears throat> look around media and academia, and see a whole lot of people pushing in the walls in, in terms of what is acceptable and what kind of things you can talk about, uh, what kind of journalism you can do, what kind of commentary you can do. We've all lived it, uh, some of us closer than others, um, uh, and it, it is a thing to talk about in the world. But so is just like doing journalism. So is like, is like having a, a profile that has nothing to do with anything about any of that. Right. Uh, Like it's it's creating something that's beyond bitching about that thing, I think, is part of what should be, you know, some new great. Yeah, journalism is it's true. I mean, the idea of it, it's a dark web. It's an intellectual dark web or that these people are, you know, so heterodox that they have to create their own avenues and their own media companies to actually get their ideas out there. There is some blame for this that I would lay at the feet of sort of mainstream journalism, Hollywood, entertainment in this way, not in a kind of Brent Bozelli way, is that if you see somebody like Joe Rogan, whose podcast is routinely number one in the country, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's millions and millions of people in, in the world, <laughs> so huge. You would think that like 1963, all these people that were signing bands that looked and sounded like the Beatles, mm. that you would have people out there trying desperately to get a Rogan type clone or Rogan himself on their network, whether it's, you know, Hulu or ABC, CBS, NBC, you know, whether it's, you know, having a little corner of it at CNN and MSNBC or actually being sort of worth watching it all on Fox, you know, you would assume that there's so much of this stuff. And there, it's it's insanely popular in certain precincts, and it's like when you Rogan's number one. So what you do in publishing, for instance, you look at the sort of bestseller list, and then you get all these Harry Potter knockoffs and these people trying to get their version of that. Why has that not happened in this case? And it's only it only could be political because they're leaving so much money on the table, and it's it's bananas. I think that's an and it also allows them to say. The media hates us. We have to do this ourselves. We're insurgents. We're revolutionaries. Rather than they're just sometimes kind of guys with sort of boringly basic ideas. I mean, think about it. I, I think, uh, and you know, sort of like figuring this out, stuff out loud as we're talking, but <clears throat> our friend Barry Weiss is an example of this. When there is someone who who comes off that way, regardless of how much, uh, you know, she can be classified in the same way, but she just treats – um, her approach to journalism is a little bit different than the uh, super expected traditional path, e- even within opinion journalism. How are those people treated? How is Kevin Williamson treated? How is any people like that treated? They are treated by the kind of grassroots and especially the younger versions in these media companies like hot garbage. Like, how dare you hire somebody like that? Or, so how, or how dare you positively profile them like the uh, Vanity Fair did? And uh, Evgeny Peretz, who everybody pointed out very quickly is Marty Peretz, uh, his daughter, um, you know, Barry never worked for him, but like, oh, pro-Israel types and look at this as a conspiracy. But, you know, there's a lot of journalists out there that I've read fawning 
profiles of over the years, and there was no hue and cry. No one said a damn thing. But it was it's not even that she exists, that people write anything positive about her. And I was surprised, honestly, to see that in Vanity Fair and like, you know, good on Vanity Fair for not taking that manuscript and saying, you know, we didn't point out that she's like, you know, a horrible monster enough. Um, you can do whatever you want. That's totally fine to do a profile like that. That's I, what is expected. But th- the point being is that when somebody does a, a positive one, there's just like an honest response from people like that's not allowed. We should not be doing that. And that's a problem. What are you doing saying nice things about this woman who has opinions that I disagree with? Good God. I think it just strikes me that um, and I'm sorry, I keep uh, coughing um, that there is a group of people, including a lot of people we've had on this podcast, like Jesse Single, for example. You might even throw the Seagulls in there, although they're, they're, they haven't been declared non-people uh, anywhere um, <laughs> uh, yet, as far as I know. But like um, people who do interesting, good work and who are uh, sporadically canceled by various, there isn't an obvious home in the world in the yeah. universe. For Katie Herzog, people. I think, would be another one. Katie Herzog, uh, Kat Rosenfield. Uh, if I'm probably screwing up everyone's name uh, a little bit. Uh, Feld. Feld. Yeah, yeah. sorry, Feldy. Um, uh, and there, there isn't a natural home. It's like they, they, they get to the point where like, ah, do I have to work for Quillette? Uh, you know, uh, yeah. and that, and the, the, yeah. that group seems to be expanding to me while the, the, uh, the, the Moynihan kind of brained, uh, Hey, let's actually respond to what the market is showing is that there's an audience for that. And there's also the people, there's worker bees who inhabit that space, uh, don't find a place. I think it's really an interesting tension. Where did, I, guess, I guess the question is where, I mean, there's a lot of things you could point as responses and, 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 and uh, reasons for this, but where does the fear come from? Because I will just say this. I won't mention anyone by name. Um, two of them were quite famous uh, people that I talked to for journalistic purposes in the past week. And another two were, you know, well-known in their own universes. Uh, all four of them talked to me um, for various different things. And at some point at the end said, yeah, this stuff is crazy. When they're on camera, when they're not on camera, when they're friends, when they're just everybody. It, it, this is happening to me more and more and more because a lot of people know that I don't care. And I will say this on the podcast and on Twitter and the rest of it, you know, less so on Twitter just because I don't like the environment, but both two, two of these four people said that they had bought copies of the coddling of the American mind for friends. Mm. I swear to God, one, you would be totally shocked by the other one. Uh, you wouldn't be, but I, yeah, kind of, um, but it it was crazy. I was like, really? I'm like, yeah, I know those guys. I know Greg, especially. So, Apparently this is contagious, man. Yeah. Um, so like it, it is out there and, and I'm like, why won't you talk to me this? Talk to me about this stuff in public, on camera, whatever. And they're like, man, it's not worth it. I'm like, but this is like, really? Is that exactly why there's people out there, you know, who are ignoring the kind of Rogan type trends and it's not cashing in on this because they're fearful of they what ext- others will say or what their colleagues will say? They're, they're handed a penalty. <laughs> no, it's crazy. I mean. But it's especially crazy when there's so much money at stake that if somebody was was clever, and I'm most certainly not, there would there would you know be a million of these bad clone shows on mainstream outlets that do have a lot of money to actually fund and promote a, a television show in the right way. Not, I mean, because I, look, I think Dave Rubin is impressive in the sense that he's made. Um, you know, a name for himself out of sure. not a lot. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and I'll give him credit for that. I mean, I don't watch a show and I know that, look, I know that he's had Stephen Fry on who's, you know, nobody's idea of a conservative, um, but he cares about free speech issues and he's incredibly bright. I'm like, God, how the hell did he get him? And so I give him credit in that sense. I think it's probably a bad business decision to keep on having 
Sarkhan of Argon or Blargon, like these fucking all right <laughs> morons on. They want to just want to talk to them. It's I like, think, yeah, I think he's been trying to clean up his act in, in recent months. May, p- possibly. Yeah. But, you know, you have a lot of these dingbats on and it's like the, the, the presumption is, well, I'm doing this because I want to hear their ideas. It's like they don't have ideas, but it's like, also they're, he's they're in, not interesting people. He's endorsing smart them. people on that side, like in that world. But he doesn't in, get the in part. some cases he is endorsing almost them. always. Yeah. And and a, and a key distinction is um, and there was a big dust up. This is a media thing. Uh, so uh, Dave Rubin, what he will often do is ignore people on the left who are at about his uh, popularity. Maybe people with hundred thousand Twitter followers or so. But he'll go after like superstars. He'll go after like Oprah or, you know, Chelsea Handler or Sarah Silverman and, and invite them on Twitter. Uh, and when they ignore him, he'll say, see, I invite lefties. They don't want to come on. So what happened a week or so ago is he invited Pete Buttigieg over Twitter. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg's campaign manager responded, yeah, DM yeah. me. Yeah. And then people from Vox, people from Media Matters, people from, you know, from HuffPost had right. an absolute conniption. And who knows what happened behind the scenes? Pete Buttigieg's campaign manager may have just said, I did a little Googling and I don't want him on the show. But whatever happened, he didn't – Buttigieg is not doing the Rubin report. Rubin is taking it as the left swarmed on him and caused me to be deplatformed. And I think that those outlets, Vox, Media Matters, and HuffPost just gave Dave Rubin the huge win that he wanted, that he sought. Because he's not totally wrong in the sense that that, that, uh, Buttigieg did the the, um, Fox News one Uh and was even praised by by people like... uh, Got a standing ovation. A standing ovation and was praised by people on the 6 o'clock Brett Baer panel. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the way down. Everyone, they're all mostly conservatives and saying, this is a guy's fairly interesting. So, yeah, I would imagine that that would be a crowd that maybe he'd want to talk to. And also his his, uh, campaign manager that did a big uh, splash or publicity director a couple of weeks ago, a big profile on her where the the headline was more or less, she will accept all invitations. So all invitations except for Dave Rubin because Fox and Media Matters got mad is not a good look. We've invited uh, Mayor Buttigieg as well, and hopefully he will join us. But uh, that that was the essential thing is that he – uh, Ruben will will claim to uh, be have an all comers platform, but he specifically reserves the spots for the left for people who are either going to talk about the regressive left, like they're either disillusioned lefties or superstars if he can get them. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, but we can we can. A, if he wants to come on this show, yeah. we'd would love to have. Him. And we've had we as to, to wrap it up real quick, then we should move on. But we've had sort of confrontational conversations that are also civil in this room, and I know we could have another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those and those are the only ones we release. You destroy the <laughs> destroy the tapes. For this the one turned badly. There's one that's going to be found by the Library of Congress. Twenty one, twenty one. It's going to be found by Charlton Heston on the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Matt, God Matt yelling. Damn you. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe it. Uh, yeah, that's the Dave Rubin and the Lost Tapes. That's like a good band name. Go ahead, Camille. Well, I was going to say I was going to say that we should probably <laughs> talk about some other things that have been going on. Uh, the Julian Assange situation has yeah. taken an interesting turn. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about it on the podcast, folks were expressing relief that the government seemed to be avoiding using Espionage Act type charges to go after Julian Assange, saying so that this time. was a yeah. restrained action on the part of the Trump administration, and we don't have to worry too much about you know this jeopardizing, say, making creating a circumstance where you potentially criminalize forms of investigative journalism. Um, you only have to wait a few weeks. Uh, and of course, you get a circumstance where the federal government has lobbed a 17 
counts uh, or 17 new charges at the WikiLeaks founder related to the Espionage Act, um, accusing him of, quote, soliciting, receiving and publishing hundreds of thousands of leaked documents in 2010 uh, methods that journalists all employ all of the time. Um, the the defense that one might raise who is talking about this situation, say, on the behalf of the Trump administration might be, well, that Julian Assange character is not a journalist. And this is the beginning of all of the trouble. You get into a circumstance where the government gets to decide who's a journalist and who not. And for the record, like it is totally the case that journalists are looking for sources who can give them information, often information that the government doesn't want them to have so that they can publish it. That is precisely the job. And or I don't know. Legally obtained yeah. or uh, loosened up. So this is an, an interesting um, and quite frankly troubling um, development in this particular case. Uh, I believe um, Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, um, with whom Assange was in, interacting when he got the a bunch of confidential cables um, and also the collateral murder video. Um, is back in prison again back in prison after refusing to talk to a grand jury to participate in this this legal action against Assange um, so this is this really is a, a distressing situation and I've seen journalists from pretty much every single corner of the political spectrum and every mainstream media outlet who are expressing some concern about this I'd love to hear more concern expressed because this is yeah. a huge it's, surpri- deal. it's surprisingly muted it's, I would say it's, that, it's as yeah. if so everyone is coming up with the right response but it there's just not a lot of it. Like it's not it's not a big media story. Uh-huh. Um, every group that I have seen, you know, reporters, committee for freedom of the press or whatever, uh, have all said the right things. Yeah. Um, but it just hasn't been a large story. And, and I would take a slight issue with the way that you characterize how we talked about it before. I think I think we all said before. Oh, we did. You're yeah. Right. Like this is this is worrying, especially the part about in, in this room. We were actually yeah. a bit more careful about that and said even this, yeah. even this is disconcerting. And now we have the rest of the story, and it's far more distressing to see what's happening here. There's not sort of the pretense of going after someone for something that they said. That and, the government and, you didn't know, this is explicitly going after someone who is doing journalistic activities in a way the government doesn't like, and the government is deciding to prosecute them. Big fucking deal. Yeah. And I believe that um, these this prosecution rests a lot on the exposure of sources. Mm-hmm. which is a very, very curious thing, right? I mean, this is the Espionage Act of 1917. We've often talked about the Schenck case from 1917, which was the first big up, big upholding of the Espionage Act, which was the, the distribution of the anti-war leaflets uh, that, again, mm-hmm. we've talked about in Fire in a Crowded Theater and Clear and Present Danger and all this stuff. Um, an incredibly stupid decision. And so you see that a lot with the Espionage Act. I mean, you see it used for the Rosenbergs. And I was actually used uh, to to charge them on the Espionage Act. But this idea now is that it's twofold. And one is that Assange induced people to commit the crime for him. And in that case, it would be be Chelsea Manning. Whereas, you know, you, you can't, I mean, otherwise... You have somebody who's receiving information, just like a newspaper or anybody else, and then distributing that information is unique. And I don't believe there is a precedent, could be wrong about this, of 
somebody, a publisher of some sort, if we want to call that person a journalist or not, it's not a journalist, by the way, is not a legal category. Mm-hmm. So that's an important point. Well, to it's make. becoming one here. It's becoming one here. Yeah. And it's in, you know, that I don't believe has been used in the past to say we're going to use the Espionage Act for material that someone received and did not break into, you know, the draft board in, you know, uh, Pennsylvania in 1972 or something. They did not, you know, break into, to, you know, somebody's office. This is the result of someone leaking infra- information, which is also quite different from breaking into somebody's house and stealing it, too. I mean, it's b- leaking information from somebody within the military. But, yeah, it's an incredibly tr- troubling precedent. And, you know, look, I get the instinct— that I d- dislike Julian Assange so much. Personally, I think he's an odious person in almost every way. Mm-hmm. And I think it is it is odious and indefensible that he did, in clear text, allow sources and people who are talking to the American government um, and helping them out in certain places and others who are just, you know, local democracy activists, et cetera, allow their names to be published. Uh, there's no reason for that. Uh, and But that's a personal opinion. I think it's, there's no reason for it. And it's not something you can prosecute somebody on. But yeah. the fact that they are mentioning this in these indictments, um, it seems to be hanging particularly on this, on the fact that, that, that people have been exposed and, and, and their names uh, written clear type and not redacted. There's an interesting uh, tension at play here. On one side, you have the Supreme Court in the last 10 years in particular has been expanding pretty drastically the legal protections for free speech, but you also have beginning really with uh, with George W. Bush uh, uh, accelerated under Obama, and now mm-hmm. this thing with with Manning, you have um, the executive branch uh, going crazy, like locking up journalists uh, for defying grand jury uh, 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 testimony things. That that just wasn't standard practice twenty years ago. It's increasingly becoming so now, uh, to the extent that people kind of shrug, and that's not shruggable. I mean, we shouldn't be doing. People shouldn't – the Espionage Act should be blown up and, and, and sent away to Madagascar in itself. But uh, to be using it against uh, journalists increasingly is very troublesome. And so I think those two things have to hit. At some point, this has to collide in a Supreme Court case with, again, a very, very uh, – you know, Neil Gorsuch is not going to defer to the executive branch on a question like this, I do not think. Um, but we'll see because whenever national security is always the big – uh, exception to a lot of First Amendment and especially Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, and I would point out that the uh, that the underlying case uh, that sort of carves out this secrecy exemption, at the very least, um, in national security, which is uh, I forget the name of the uh, the exact case, but it was a uh, it was a, a, a airplane crash that was totally covered up by the government, and so mm-hmm. the uh, the widows wanted to find out information about this. Like, no, you're going to reveal a secret program of, of planes. It's like, no, you're just going to reveal that you didn't actually check. It's just embarrassing. Um, yeah. Just embarrassing. Um, only we only find that out like 40, 50 years later. Um, and so uh, all these kind of big exemptions for uh, the ability to for the federal government to get involved in life and death decisions that's been given more and more power. But so have legal protection. So it's got to collide. And I'm hoping that it collides in a positive way. But it's not something that we can bet on just because. Uh, uh, yeah. And I think interesting also is the political aspect of this and the fact that all of this stuff has been this kind of hypocrisy has been so normalized recently. The fact that the government and Donald Trump are cheering on somebody who he uh, from behind a lectern said, I love WikiLeaks. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And then you have somebody like Sean Hannity who asked Julian Assange to 
sub in as a host for his radio show live, <laughs> from, live from the Ecuadorian Marxist embassy before before taken over by Lenin Moreno. That's but pretty yeah. good surrealism. You I mean, it's to, amazing. It's yeah. like I just love I, I do appreciate the fact that nobody gives a fuck anymore is that we're not pretending anymore. Everyone's just saying, like, look, I got a job to do here. I'm supporting this team and I'll just do what I can to support them. <laughs> you know, And that's where we are. And, and, and I wish. We would see. I, I wonder if, and, and someone can tell me if I'm wrong about this. Has Hannity said anything in defense of Assange, who he praised so so highly in the past election? I seem to remember him saying something um, about this, and I'm looking at you, Fisher. You're not making eye contact with me, but I seem to remember him saying something about this uh, during when when he was first arrested, mm-hmm. um, or when there were first rumblings about him being arrested and and defending him on principle and suggesting that this is a thing that shouldn't happen. He shouldn't be prosecuted uh, for doing his job. I don't know that he said anything recently. I'd be interested in hearing that too. I mean, one problem too, and this is a reason why I think press groups are rightly sounding the, the alarm, but it's not a big uh, issue on cable news, is that what's the biggest story that cable news has been invested in over the last two years, mm. especially MSNBC and CNN? It's been Trump Russia. And, you know, who is a big villain in the Trump Russia story from that point of view? It's WikiLeaks. Mm. Uh, and so, like, there's, there isn't any natural sympathy uh, for him at all there. Right. Like, people are on the I – mean, John Brennan is not going to use his contributorship to whatever cable network that he's working for to talk about how maybe this is a, uh, an exaggeration of using the espionage act or whatever there's a there's a lot of people who whether they they hate him as a as a figure or as a journalist or they hate his role in this one big story are, are just not going to uh, shed a tear for him and that's part of the muted response but establishing that's exactly the muted response also uh, considering that in the russia investigation and all the breathless media coverage in that time the things i mean having passed through vladivostok once in 1965 was enough to get you on the list of some of these baddier people. So Julian Assange's associations, which are, I think, troubling, you know, just because they're obviously troubling uh, with regimes like the Putin regime, particularly having a show on RT, you mm-hmm. they usually use the cutout of the production company and say, oh, I don't work for RT. This is a production company mm-hmm. that does it. Um, his lack of any you know, leaks from one of the most corrupt regimes in the world, which is the Putin regime again. Yeah, that stuff's like pretty pretty curious. But these these are people that, of course, hung people by their ankles for for the weirdest associations with Russia and the most passing associations with Russia. Not, of course, the Manaforts of the world, but but some of these sort of smaller players. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they all also presume that uh, Julian Assange is a Russian intelligence asset. Um, maybe he is. I don't know. But I, I mean, I don't have any evidence of that. So, you know, he's not as far as I'm concerned. Right. So uh, Mike Pompeo is a name that is relevant to the conversation about Assange, specifically because I remember him. And it, this was shortly after the election, I believe, referring to Assange and WikiLeaks as yeah. a hostile state actor or something like yeah. that or an hostile, asset of a foreign hostile, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and not and not a journalistic organization. And that was frequently, and I'm, I'm sure I probably did it on this podcast, contrasted with what the president himself had said about WikiLeaks, both just the general endorsement of them um, and him seeming to explicitly refer to them as a journalistic organization. Can they be both? 
Um, Can they be a hostile non-state actor in the sense that Julian Assange really does not like the United States government? It's certainly possible. Um, But I I mention it because we have another circumstance where the president of the United States is saying one set of things about certain foreign policy things. And some of his highest ranking advisors, so folks who are working Mm -hmm. for him, uh, Mr. Bolton and Mr. Pompeo, seem to be a bit more aggressive. And I'm specifically talking here about our circumstance in the Middle East where there have been some pretty interesting developments with respect to Iran and the United States dispatching uh, some of its heavy um, naval weaponry towards that region of the world in response to threats. I'm using some sort of air quotes. Imagine it if you can. Um, also, I think he was spinning up something like 150,000 additional troops. 1,500. 1,500. 150,000 sounds more spectacular. <laughs> yeah, can we just go much. with that? Yeah. Can, we, can we go with that and just say fake news? It's fine. So 15,000 um, additional troops getting spun up. 1,500. 1,500. It's a, every single time I talk about government spending, I say 3 billion So there's some more troops getting spun up and sent to the Middle East um, in response to this. And there were a number of people who appropriately are concerned that we might be seeing a run-up to war, especially given some of the characters involved here. Um, But recently, Donald Trump, who is in Japan now, I believe still— Just got back, just got back. Did he just get back from Japan? But he's on his way to the UK next for another state set round of state festivities. Um, But during a presser there was asked a question about what's going on, both with respect to that and with respect to North Korea, and in both cases seemed to tamp down some of the concern— Or specifically throw John Bolton under the bus at one point. Yeah. So, and also uh, Joe Biden, low IQ Joe Biden. Sleepy yeah. Joe Biden. Uh, so it's in, it's interesting to see that that difference of perspective on these seemingly important material things. Hand, but it's hard to know how this is going to break. You you uh, did that documentary about foreign policy and stuff. And we've mm-hmm. talked about uh, aspects of, of this conflict between – You got pro- me accused of being um, – A neoliberal deep, show. I know. I think a deep state something. Well, <laughs> well obviously. It's well known. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like – yeah, so you follow this closer than I do. Is there a person in the Trump administration in any kind of senior level position having to do with uh, foreign policy, national security, who is at all like Trump on foreign policy? Not that. What, do, what does that even mean? What is well, well, like like what Trump purported to be during the campaign and, and, and what, also what he what he what he talks about. I mean, I guess Stephen Miller probably would come closest on some weird level. Yes, he doesn't want to talk about foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, he talks about uh, immigration. But no, I mean that America first, uh, you know, we're going to uh, tamp down the uh, uh, we're going to have make our allies pay more. We're going to withdraw uh, troops from Syria. We're going to we're going to think about withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. We're going to do the X over here and Y over here. Um, I, there aren't those people in the administration. There, there might be um, sort of smaller names or something, but not in the administration in a foreign policy capacity. Which I mean, is which an is, interesting I mean, thing, you, right? you might have had them in the kind of Bannons of the world when, when in his brief um, stay in the White House and other people. I don't know what Michael Anton and those guys thought about foreign policy specifically. But yeah, not in the establishment of, you know, you know that the, all the Breitbart people and all those, you know, pro-Trump guys in D.C. referred to them derisively as the, the generals. generals. Yeah. yeah, it was the generals are doing this, the generals. And those people didn't have, they thought, appropriate representation in those positions. So it does not appear that there is anybody um, who kind of pushed him on, on Iran is fairly interesting because I don't think the obvious answers are 
You know, I mean, it's 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 complicated, but I think there are some people that are pushing him in these directions, but not necessarily foreign policy people. Not people in the the mandarins are do not, you know. But he also campaigned super aggressive about Iran. I mean, that was worst deal ever made. And uh, and Bannon's uh, crackpot or sort of cracked, I should say, uh, like foreign policy theory all has to do with like, you know, there's a a split between Saudi Arabia and Iran and we have to come out on the Saudi side and this is us, you know, moving the chess pieces here and they'll fight the proxy war and we'll sort of back them. Um, so like that it really it, works out well, yeah, all the time. Generally speaking, in the Middle <laughs> yeah, East, that's, yeah. a, that's a, a positive strategy. But uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating that he doesn't have um, uh, there. Trumpism is not a thing. First of all, it's very hard to figure out what the coherence of it is. Michael there is, alluding there is no coherence What's to um, but it, it doesn't have any expression in the the bench of foreign policy expertise out there. Uh, and so you're going to create, I remember talking to Bolton like uh, just weeks before he was uh, appointed as, as national security advisor, we're talking mm-hmm. in a green room somewhere mm-hmm. and just to remind listeners, we all disagree with John Bolton to greater and uh, degrees in this room. And we've, most of us, I think have hung out with him in green rooms and totally uh, enjoy talking to him. It's a, it's a yeah. Camille doesn't. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever spoken. Oh really? Okay. So, so. It, yeah. he's an interesting guy to talk to. Um, but I remember specifically talking to him about what perceived, uh, what seemed from the outside to be three different foreign policies happening in the Trump white house at the same time. You had mm-hmm. Trump, whatever he says in tweets, uh, which is whatever. Uh, at the time, you had Nikki Haley at the UN. And um, then you had Rex Tillerson, who now is the lowest IQ person this, this side of uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> and, but, having, and having secret meetings with Democrats that aren't that secret. Uh, <laughs> and saw that, right? They, like recent? Yeah. You didn't see that? Uh, Debrief us a little bit. Uh, no, there was just a, a on Capitol Hill. I saw it in passing when I was actually shooting something, so I didn't read in depth. But that I think that provoked another... Um, string of obscenities from President Trump because he was talking to some high-ranking Democrats about his experience in the administration. He was talking to the House Foreign Affairs Committee last week. Oh, yeah, but he there was some. I think there was some separate thing that he was talking talking specifically to Democrats. I can't remember, but 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 either way, it was something that annoyed the president. But the thing, look to the to, to that point is that there is no Trumpism. There is no Trump populism even. There's occasional shouts about populist things that people enjoy when they're populist, right? <laughs> I've been to the rallies, I've seen them cheer, et cetera. But the follow through, I mean, even the, the the sort of building the wall stuff, I mean, the best person to follow on that, honestly, is Ann Coulter because she's abandoned him and makes fun of him literally every day because she says, this is why I voted for the guy. This is why I wrote a book called In Trump We Trust, which she should have trusted. And this is how he's repaying us. He can't even get this right, and he doesn't seem to care. Mm-hmm. And that's on his big signature issue. On foreign policy, on some days, you think that, good God, he is, you know, an isolationist in, in, a, in a Taftian tradition. And then other days, you think he's a complete psychopath who's probably going to unleash the fury of hell on, you know, Iran for, I mean, then the next day he kind of pulls back from it. And then there's 75 Tomahawk missiles in Syria. And then, you know, there might be a, a sea of fire in North Korea. And then North, then Kim Jong-un, because he's nice to him and, and says nice things about him. And the Koreans are sitting there, is it that easy? You, you seriously? Is that easy? And then he's praising them and, and, and insulting Joe Biden in the same sentence. If anyone can find any coherence in that, it's only that the only thing I can see is if there's strong factions Within the administration, you know, as it pertains to particular countries, they might win out. And that's the Robert Lighthizer kind of thing. Like the China stuff they've actually stuck to. So the worst possible thing they could do 
they've actually stuck to. And it's really screwing up, screwing up the economy now in the most microscopic ways. I saw this uh, story this morning in the London Times, the number of Chinese students that are now filling American universities and, and pouring money into them, too, um, are going to the UK and to Europe. Hmm. Because that's too difficult and, and, and not worth it to come to the U.S. And like these kinds of trade, like you saw like Nike and all these places saying like, dude, you got to stop this. It's going to ruin our business. And, and like, uh, no, no, no. The beer industry just announced, I think, 40,000 uh, layoffs or job reductions yeah. because of a trade war. Well, no, but the thing is, is there are like 300 new steel workers. So it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And then you can put those people in commercials and they're like hammering metal and it becomes all of a sudden like a Bolshevik ad from like 1925. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is, is that that's winning. And that's the thing that is winning. And that is the thing. Also, you know, there are so many things on this that he's even pulled back from and sort of exceptions when companies go applying. They have to apply for these exemptions in the, the it, w- it would take them 10 years to, to process all the exemptions that people are trying to because, you know, they can't afford stuff. These people that are have factories in the United States, they have to import the, the some of the material to make their product. And now they can't and they, they can. And it's going to cost them a premium. and It's going to kill their business because then they're competing with. The Chinese company do something. My favorite one was the nail business. I talked to a guy, and it's in the this film I did. Is that they were they were putting a tariff on the imported steel that they needed for, to make the nails from Mexico, and so there it was all of a sudden going to cost I think twice as much, and they were fretting and they had all this back stock and they're like, what are we going to do? And the other thing that they were complaining about was that there was no tariff on Chinese nails, so Chinese nails were coming in tariff free. And then they were were paying this tariff from stuff coming in from Mexico that they need to make make the nails, and it's like he's actually benefiting the Chinese industry because it's so haphazardly and unevenly applied. So, like, I don't think. And to, to back to the larger point is I can't find any ideological coherence to this. People used to c- complain about the Reagan administration in that well, it said that it was going to cut spending and it actually grew because government always grows. And then you have these Team B type people in foreign policy, but that there was others kind of sort of centrist type. That were George H.W. Bush. But there was ultimately a coherence to all of it, right? I mean, you agree or disagree with it, but it's, it, it was in this kind of universe of coherence where now, I mean, you can get two completely opposite sides of almost every issue, with the exception of like the, the it's kind of abortion and guns and things like that. But on foreign policy, on economics, it's anybody's guess. Mm-hmm. It's really anybody's guess. And there isn't, I, I hate it, it's like, oh, Trumpism. It's like, no, Trumpism is saying dumb populist things to a bunch of idiots who actually believe this still. And by the way, if you still believe this, you're a fucking moron. I'm sorry. You're not smart at this point. Mm. I get why people voted for you. And I, I, I get it. I get it. But at this point, like how easy do you have to be tricked to believe that this stuff is still going to happen, that there's going to be a wall and that American manufacturing jobs are coming back and that we're going to have this roaring great economy forever. I mean, it, which is, you know, 99% not his fault. I mean, you know, it's not not his uh, uh, victory. Right. And, you know, there's at some point we have to say there is no Trumpism. There is a guy who's a sort of deranged megalomaniac who goes and praises Kim Jong-un. And you have a panel of people on Fox News I saw the other day who cut their teeth in kind of Reagan, Sandinista, Grenada, you know, Cold War politics. And they're like, is the Republican guy actually kind of praising a Stalin, the last Stalinist in America? Yeah, and they're, they're actually being kind of critical. Critical. Yeah. They're like, "Wow, that's wow." I mean, it's your team, but you got to back off at this point. Yeah, and using using uh, uh, a dictator to cast aspersion or saying that, yeah, we were yucking it up against uh, my political opponent at home as uh, as a good idea. Yeah. But it, but is so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you say there's no Trumpism. 
But at the same time, there is uh, – like we just had the European elections, parliament elections, which is insignificant in terms of the European parliament having necessarily a lot of power or anything like that. But it, it is a kind of bellwether where, whether, where politics are coming from and you follow close, more closely than I do. But just eyeballing it, um, the populist right – and the populist left are both completely ascendant uh, in both places. Maybe not as fast on the populist right as was forecasted beforehand, but still, like, and much more on the right than the left. The uh, you know the five year trend, the ten year trend is absolutely unmistakable. That there is this thing, this kind of collective revulsion at internationalism at the center, whatever the center is perceived to be, um, and it's very it's the exception, not the rule, where you find a Macron type of person who can exist, saying like, look, I I, I will protect you against. Uh, Le Pen's on the right and the and the Trotskyists on the left here. Um, that is that's basically the exception. And he's now. I mean, he was out. He did reasonably well considering his poll numbers. I mean, I, it was you know, I mean, National Rally, which used to be National Front, of course, um, did very very well. And I, I, you know, look, everyone has said this that they didn't grow as much as expected. But I think those forecasts were all wrong. And the reason the forecasts were all wrong was because the populist right won previously. And they won previously. And what happens when they won previously? And this is on, on national elections and, you know, European parliamentary level, too. What happens is you have a, a tightening of border controls and then you have the end of the migrant crisis. And so people tend to walk away a little bit from those policies. Um, it was urgent before. So everyone was sort of sprinting toward it. But, but Matteo Salvini in, in Italy is the most amazing one. I mean, and, or, you know, Orban. And if you take Fidesz, Orban, and Jobbik, which didn't, which was halved, by the way, which is like a, basically a neo-Nazi party. There were 15%, now they're about eight. But you c- combine those two numbers, you know, about 60% of the Hungarian voting public is kind of in the far right camp or like the, you know, some totalitarian right and some kind of authoritarian right. But the trend across the board, Salvini is the first person who's brought like some measure of stability to Italy. And I, I mean that in a government way, not in the sense of like, you know, the, the social mores are perfect. And I'm not a fan of his at all. But he has brought stability in the sense that Italian governments usually collapse within 35 seconds. <laughs> and there's a guy with like a huge mustache who comes, oh, I like, I'm going to be the next one, right? We're going to take it up. And then like, you know, Salvini has been incredibly stable. And he, we's just the league um, just got another mandate through the Euro- European Parliament. And the biggest thing that no one's talking about, which is insane, and people are talking about it, because the, journal- the, the journalism class in England doesn't want to, to, to exist, is that the largest winner in the United Kingdom, single biggest party, was a brand new party started like weeks ago, basically, of Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Bigger than the Conservatives, bigger than than um, labor, and then a big jump for the opposite of that, which was which is the liberal, liberal Democrats, who are very clear about being Remainers. They're the only ones who are clear about it. Labor is not clear about this. Basically, there's a far-left uh, kind of leadership in the Labor Party who are also kind of Brexiteers, because they, they hate it for, for, for sort of left-wing reasons. So the only people that are being clear about it is Brexit Party, right? We're going to leave, and we'll do it by hook or crook, deal or no deal. And then on the other side, Lib Dems, we're going to stay and we'll do whatever we can, another referendum. So you know, people are kind of tired of that kind of gridlock. And in the UK, they voted for Nigel Farage. Why does every UK uh, like conservative to far right uh, uh, politician uh, have either the worst haircut 
uh, on the planet. <laughs> yeah. In the case of the next, I guess the next prime minister is going to be Boris Johnson, right? Like it's going uh, we'll to probably see. have to be. We'll or Nigel Farage, just like a, a, a like a, a repulsive face. Yes, I mean, yes, he looks like he was hit in the face with a shovel. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of a flat. Kind and then of, he liked you know. it. Yeah, it, yeah. It's really, yeah, yeah. But you know, Europe is interesting. Far right parties, um, you know, all, all the more mainstream at this point. And the two poles that have existed since the end of the war, which is sort of Christian Democrat right and a social Democratic left, have kind of shrunk. And then you have the Greens, which are the big winners of this of this uh, last election, and you have the populist right. And, you know, the populist right, of course, as our listeners probably know, are populist left on economic policies. So all around, the economic policies of Europe will probably get back to the sclerosis of the past because those, I mean, FDP, for instance, in Germany is a free kind of free market party, basically barely exists these days. You know, the liberals in Sweden barely exist these days. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 been a kind of coarsening of the politics there. And it's back to uh, a lot of centralized uh, power, whether it's distributing welfare payments or whether it's preventing immigrants from coming across the borders. Can we just point out that for the last, what, 25, 35 minutes, Camille's just been lacing shoes? Yes. Just <laughs> lacing yeah. sneakers, yeah. unlacing, I was, I was going to start singing a song. It was, super it was lacing. laced in a weird way that was hurting me. But I'm in the room and I'm, I'm aware of what we're talking about. I'm yeah. big. It's like yeah. I can't see what I'm doing. It's like therapy crochet. It's, it's, it's in a tough space actually. right now. Yeah. If, Gee, if, you, if you're I'm sitting going there going, why are uh, Welch and Moynihan just shut it? <laughs> Camille's fucking like... No, I'm like, letting... I'm making a hat for a child. I'm letting the conversation go. I don't feel the need to interject myself into everything. Speaking of which, transition. Oh, can I say one thing? You bought Matt. You just stepped on no. the best MLK transition ever. Oh, I can't. Ever. Thank God I stepped on it. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> just like everybody else in the media. Nobody wants to talk about it. No. I want to say one thing. Uh, this is uh, from a listener who um, I saw in Seattle um, and said, uh, remembered that uh, you had given... Uh, Matt, a uh, watermelon hat for not a hat. It was a toy. It's a little uh, watermelon a toy. 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 Yeah. Sorry, a hat. A toy. Mm -hmm. And he was wondering. His wife makes hats. Uh -huh. Crochets hats. And said uh, he had uh, saw your uh, adorable child, maybe on Instagram or something, or uh -huh. maybe on your Twitter. Yeah. And said, could I? Could he make the same for for her? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so there's yeah. two. There's two gifts. One was the super racist doll that Matt's mom actually made. She crocheted that. The, she listens and then to this. There was she the super racist chew toy that Matt bought. The chew daughter, toy was racist. Which was a watermelon. The the Doll was um, I love the doll. I do. Thank it's you. Beautiful. Yeah. My daughter loved the doll. Took to it immediately. My daughter also loved the watermelon. You, by the way, seriously are creating the yeah. next Asada Shakur. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I played with a watermelon doll. It's like crazy. No, no. My, so my, they, my, my, my daughter is going to be beyond all of those things. They, they had offered, uh, his own wife had offered to knit a hat in the same theme. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Those, what you're talking about are, 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 in, are inside gifts. <laughs> yes. This would probably be an outside gift. Yeah. And that Listen, might get I, you in a hard time. I can't officially advise that you do this. Some people yeah. might never forgive you for it. It could go on your permanent record. You could lose your job and other things that you care about. So just uh, gifts are, what, are I, what I'm hearing is that Tracy. It's not necessary. <laughs> it's Tracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be yeah. careful. Yeah. yeah. Just be careful out there. Yeah. <laughs> but this person uh, is a, is a, a great fan of the show and, and a uh, very brilliant guy and uh, had a great conversation with him. So the uh, verdict is no. Yeah. <laughs> can I, Other can I, I want to say this okay. because I know you don't want to talk about the story. I, I totally it. do. I kind of barely want to talk about the story. I just think so many jokes that I can't kind of, That's exactly the thing. Um, David Garrow, uh, who is um, a, a 
biographer who's written about MLK. He's written for a number of respectable publications uh, about, uh, what was it? It's like several days ago that I first saw reporting on this. Um, he has a piece that is forthcoming, which details, has details about notes about these recordings that the FBI collected about MLK. And if you've listened to this podcast in the past and heard us talk about it, or perhaps are just aware of things, you know that the, the, Domestic surveillance was carried out by the federal government of the United States against Martin Luther King Jr. while he was alive in mm-hmm. an attempt to collect information that could be used to discredit him. Yes. Um, they even sent him a suicide package. Yes. Uh, they, uh, yeah. with, with tapes and all their sorts of discrediting information, um, encouraging him to kill himself because they were otherwise they were going to publish things that would uh, be very, very detrimental to him. Now, so far as I know, there was not a great deal of publication of that sort of information while King was alive. In fact, I don't, the federal government has never, so far as I know, willingly started to put this stuff out in order to try and embarrass King. No. So far as I know. Um, uh, but, but we are seeing recent reporting, and maybe you yeah. can clarify this, Matt, but again, so far as I know, but we are seeing recent reports about f- these audio tapes, which the audio tapes will eventually be available, I think in like 2026 or something like that. Uh, did they actually say they're going to make the tapes available? Well, they, they're supposed to. Perhaps they, sh- they, they won't. They shouldn't. Um, they absolutely should not. Well, I should say what's on the tapes yeah. reportedly. What we do know is that Garrow has access to notes about the tapes. Mm. Yes. And the notes about the tape suggest all sorts of horrible things um, yes. about Dr. King. Firstly, that he had relationships with affairs, I would say, with more than 40 women or as many as 40 women. I but the worst horrible awful. things. Yeah. Well, 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 I, I yeah. think some of us think it's disreputable to sleep around on your wife, especially when you're a reverend. I love the fact Just that saying. you know that Tracy lives. Uh, um, well, I think it's disreputable, <laughs> yeah. sir. Oh. Um, it's also, especially once you get above 10. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. 10 is the threshold. Yeah, Before yeah. that, it's like, yeah. I understand. Okay. Yeah. I understand. You slipped. You fell. It happens. Sure, it happens. Yeah. Um, but the worst yeah. allegation in here is uh, this allegation of him watching while a friend who was also a reverend um, took advantage of a woman. I, the word rape is used, so I will use it here. But I, I believe, we haven't heard I the audio they, tapes. So they claim that it was, it was encouraged. Yeah, well, we haven't used the audio tapes. We haven't heard the audio tapes. No one has. It's possible these notes are mistaken. But what I find interesting about the story, apart from just the, the kind of awful nature of it, is the fact that it seems that no one is interested in touching this with no. a 200,000 foot pole for rather obvious reasons. I mean, Martin Luther King is, is as close to sacred as anyone in the United States of America. And he's someone who at the time of his death was hated by an extraordinary proportion of the population only to become revered and loved. And I don't even know that if it turned out that all of these things were true, that there would be a wild and loud outcry to say shutter the king memorial it's really you might actually make it bigger um yeah, you no, might actually find know. a way to go after the people who are publishing these things trying to denigrate this man i don't know but, i mean fact. if those if, if a tape came out that you know the garrow cites uh the the rape one in particular if that were to come out as an actual tape and be verified etc that would complicate matters a lot obviously because you know the beatification of king after his death i think is one of the few justifiable beatifications of any public figure in America. I, you know, it, the respect that he commands is a respect that he deserves. But, you know, separating the man from, 
you know, what he does in private mm-hmm. or what he says about I mean, we talk about that quite a lot, but I can always I, I can always do that. That would be slightly different, mm. right? I mean, sexual assault would open that person up to a lot of charges of hypocrisy. It, I mean, in a way that the affairs would not. The affairs are well known back yeah, in the day. I yeah, remember I mean, reading I, about I it when I was in elementary them, but, school. But seeing mm. the number 40 in print. Like right. that's the, 40, you're approaching like Will 10, Chamberlain numbers here. Whatever. No, a lot, lot more zeros for Will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's also that. Even like, after his death, like Will Chamberlain, still <laughs> racking oh him up. God. Do, like, I, do we, I mean, do we believe this? I mean, the government takes notes in a person that they're trying, we just have notes of a person that they're trying, whose character they're trying to assassinate for a lot of years. I mean, a, a very healthy bit of skepticism should the be. The J. Edgar Hoover led FBI yes. who yeah. was trying to constantly uh, smear him as a communist and as a pedophile and whatever the hell else. Uh, yeah. And, and Moynihan's absolutely right here that we should never, no one should ever hear those tapes. Yeah. Those tapes were hmm. illicitly gotten. Yes. Right? That's, They're that's illicitly exactly right. gotten. I the, mean, this the is the point. Surveillance that, was illegal. That uh, Eli Lake was making in a different context about the Mueller investigation, but that when you do a counterintelligence operation, mm-hmm. even a justified one, which mm-hmm. I think the Russia mm-hmm. investigation was probably justified, yeah. um, uh, even when you do that, if you're, you're, you're basically conducting surveillance on someone uh, who uh, may or may not have committed a crime or whatnot, that shouldn't, that information should not be leaked while the investigation is ongoing. It's unfair. Kind of sounds uh, a little bit like the, the Robert Kraft situation as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, we, that abs- and I'm glad that got uh, quashed. We shouldn't see him getting, it shouldn't have been filmed in the first place. Uh, well, they for, did leak the video. Um, so. To leak the video. My God. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, we know not just that he was being surveilled, but that the surveillance was done in an intention to uh-huh. try to, to uh, reduce his effectiveness to try to get him to make, I mean, it's it's one of the worst abuses that we've seen, uh, and it it, unearth, it came as part of an unearthing of, of just a, a systemic abuse at the FBI and at all kind of intelligence and, and uh, law enforcement agencies within the federal government. That's horrifying to this day. I mean, if you haven't gone back and just put the pure poison of the Church Commission report into your veins recently, I highly recommend it. And I wish people would 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 think about that even now as we're uh, uh, digesting the uh, the Trump Russia and the Mueller report stuff too, because if you give these people unchecked authority, they're going to use it in a bad way, a bad actors or even, you know, and it's and it is actually transparently racist, obviously. I mean, you don't have to make a huge case about this, but what I'm, I'm what, nodding. I'm nodding aggressively. Yeah, I, I agree. People, people always wonder, well, communities think they're racist. Well, yeah. <laughs> racist. It's absolutely racist. super racist. It's, unequivocally it's racist. Unequivocally racist. And unlike brown sugar, if you don't. If, yes. Yes. <laughs> if you're, you don't. You're right, Matt. Thank you about that. Yeah. But if you don't think this, it's a pretty straightforward thing. To, to, to look at is that Jagger Hoover in the FBI said uh, that the Black Panther Party was the sort of number one public enemy in the United States mm-hmm. in the early 1970s. I mean, obviously, in the 60s, they're surveilling them and doing something very similar. What you would do if you actually cared about civil rights and weren't just a bunch of like ossified racist goons is that you would support the people who were on the other end of black nationalism, which was which was was King and you know Ralph Abernathy and people like that, well, not who in were nineteen seventies, but yeah, yeah, well, in the seventies. I mean, yeah. King was dead at that point. Yeah. I mean, but but in the I mean, they were warning against Bayard Rustin, people yeah. like that were warning against this kind of radical extreme. And you would typically, I mean, what the CIA did, for instance, in in the Congress of Cultural Freedom and, and the Cold War, is that they backed a lot of liberals. That, that were anti-communist, right? So, mm-hmm. like, these guys are not really probably our guys because institutionally it was quite a conservative organization. 
But we'll back them. We'll back people that are like even lefties that opposed Soviet communism. And they funded them through Encounter magazine and all these other things. They didn't do that with King and the sort of more religiously based uh, civil rights groups. Instead, they try to kill both of them, destroy both of them yeah. in the most you know, horrible and, and, and sort of profane way. And it's it, this kind of stuff with King is, I think, probably worse than even anybody else got that I, can, that I know of. Uh, I could be wrong about that. And you know what? Like the, to get to the root question of it, yes, the sexual assault stuff would complicate people's narrative. But as I was mentioning I hope, yeah. uh, before, like I remember in elementary school gorging on biographies of Martin Luther King – uh, and John Lennon in particular, right? Mm, uh, mm. Both people who were uh, like early heroes of mine. And the – I mean John Lennon was a dick. God, was he a dick. Mm. Uh, and it's – I mean every – there's no way that you – even even the ones that are the most flattering towards him um, will acknowledge like, yeah, maybe he kicked that one guy in the head to death and, and that he would change his mind radically every like 12 months and repudiate his past self. And he would just – he was monstrous in this way and he was really cruel. He called Brian Epstein fag Jew. He was, he, was, he, was a, yeah. he was not a nice person in many respects. And it's like that complicates things in a way that makes him more human and a more lived-in character. And I think that's part of the reason why people – People have affection for him, actually, is because he was flawed. He uh-huh. talked about his flaws. He made art about his flaws. And it's somehow relatable in a little way. And and like Martin Luther King and in, in, uh, in his uh, own uh, uh, words, like he was calling it to question his own behavior. And he he fess. I don't know if he, he made direct confessionals because it's been so long since I read the source materials. But I think there were allusions to like I was getting big for my britches and I started to believe my own press. And yeah, all, and, all the pastors say that kind of stuff. Uh, and, just got a blanket disclaimer. And sadly, uh, uh, from my point of view, he was apologetic for applying for a gun permit, which I think I would have don't apologize for, for that. gun permit if I was Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, uh, seeing it. But whatever, like it was part of all of this is like that's part of his flaws um, that a flawed man could have created something so great and so powerful and eternal as to basically come up with something akin to the Declaration of Independence in that he created a text, particularly the letter for Birmingham jail, but also in, mm-hmm. in uh, the speech. Uh, from the National Mall, he created a text and a way of thinking about stuff that's eternally under uh, – everyone wants a piece of it. Everyone yeah. wants to have their own interpretation of it. Such is the potency of the language and the blueprint that it lays out for a kind of uh, American life. It's a, it's a renewal of of like the founding ideas of America. That mm-hmm. is so incredibly powerful to do that and just – it's like the Thomas Jefferson story. My god, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and he was a dick. Yes. Isn't it incredible yeah. that that man did so many great things? Yeah. That's the way to look at this. It's not like, oh, my God, we can cancel him now. Is it is it fair to say that – well, not is it fair to say. I think it is very fair to say that Martin Luther King is part of the national mythology, that all of the things that you were just alluding to with respect to the, the National Mall um, and the letter from Birmingham jail and just our sensibilities about what we believe he stood for, all of those things are things that virtually every single American agrees upon. And it is very interesting when you draw the contrast between the flaws of the founding father and the the defects inherent in the American project from the very beginning, the blemish on our sort of national integrity and honor, and these apparent potential um, blemishes on King's own personal honor and integrity, that we can live with both things, the the awfulness, the, the shortcomings and the failings, and the still 
undeniable importance of the American project in terms of this struggle for individual liberty. Yeah, I mean, it's not about importance anymore. And the reason we're having this conversation is that would have been reported either way. If this was the same sort of cultural climate in 1975 as it is right now, that piece that you're referring to about the the uh, King findings, the Garrow findings uh, in the archives – We'd still have that conversation, but the conversation would be, would be substantially different because, I mean, you see now people, I think someone recently about debating whether or not you take George Washington's name mm-hmm. uh-huh. from a school, I believe, in California or something. I can't remember. But in the same thing about uh, Jefferson, um, do we do this statue nest, et cetera, because we live in a world where things are binary and moral now. It's a moral judgment upon somebody, not a judgment of importance. If you're important in the American project of building it in the American project is kind of a self-healing project where it gets better and better and better. Mm-hmm. People don't want to believe that, but it has gotten considerably better every year since its founding, is that we now want to cancel everybody who had horrible blemishes. And they do have horrible blemishes. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe in, you can't have a history. You can't have a shared history and you can't, you know, exist as a historian if you're constantly rendering moral judgment about every player in history and that's it. You have to do that, of course. Well, you can ridiculously you and maliciously abs- demand perfection with, with well, that's, respect to that's everything, the thing, which is I, what they do. Yeah, that's what they do. But, but it's unreasonable and unfair. And in sure. the case of the United States, the assertion is often that America is fundamentally corrupt. Therefore, it can never yes. be good. Yes. It can and, never and, and be again, it, it, virtuous or valuable in any context. Same with the founders. And it's it's a poisonous way of imagining is. the world. And I don't. I, and I want to be clear about this. I don't think that one shouldn't render a moral judgment on people. But the fact that that's all it is these days of like, well, this it's the kind of rock, paper, scissors is that, well, he did this good thing, but he did this bad thing and paper covers rock hmm. and that person's gone. And, you know, I I think on balance is a phrase that we don't use as, as much as we should these <laughs> days, that on balance, this person is a pretty great person and did amazing things for the world. I mean, I mean, you look at, uh, was it uh, Watson or Crick? Who was the one? The D, uh, the um, the guy, he did all the sexist things. Uh, yeah. The, the discoverer of DNA. Mm-hmm. I think it was Watson. Is it Watson? And said all these horrible things about actor. women and women being like too dumb to do science and everything. Like It was Watson. It was Watson. And you don't, at that point, it's like his legacy is pretty amazing. And yeah, he, at the at sort of, as he's about to slide off this mortal coil, he opens his mouth and God knows if he's just been holding it in, felt like he was saying it, or if he has a sort of slight bit of dementia or whatever it is. No, he's, he's kind of racist, but. Yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. He's, he's racist too and sexist. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah. He also discovered DNA. He also, yeah. <laughs> Both things. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and then he was yeah. like, that means white people are amazing. Women are idiots. It's like, yeah, but you did, that was good. Good discovery. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the interpretation of it. But do, I don't, I think there's, an, it will be an attempt and has been an attempt to write people like this out of history or minimize their contributions because of their odious and noxious views. And that's just a bad, I don't, I think that the King thing will be handled in the correct way. Mm -hmm. Being skeptical and not giving it undue attention when we don't really know because the messenger in this is not a reliable messenger. So I remember a a conversation I had with my uh, father-in-law who's a a scholar about uh, um, Rome Roman history in the time of Christ. Hmm. Uh, he's also um, 
uh, Catholic and he lives in Lyon and has access to the great uh, 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 Catholic uh, library there, which is one of the biggest ones in the world. Um, and uh, ask it, sort of asking him questions about the church because you know I'm an, an outsider to it, even though now I, I attend with some regularity. Um, and he made the argument of the uh, he believes that the Catholic Church. I think I was asking him a, a kind of a, a hypocrisy question along the lines of uh, what about the fact that a lot of the early Christians owned slaves or tolerated slavery. And his response was interesting, which was a yeah, but kind of thing. And his but was a big one. It was, I think, from this is his perspective, that the uh, the Catholic Church or the teachings of Christ or whatever has been the biggest single uh, uh, cause for emancipation in human history. Hmm. Um, don't know if I agree with him, but it's an interesting yeah, it's thing. It's, it's the William Wilberforce argument. Yeah. And it's, but, but I think one of the reasons why the argument has at least some potency is that the church, like the American idea, and I'm not necessarily conflating the two, but like you start from a premise of what do you do if people are imperfect, when people are imperfect, because people are imperfect. <laughs> they are totally imperfect. People are fallen. Sure. And like, that's where the church begins. You sure, are fallen. Sure, sure. Even the guy who's the God, he fell too. Everyone, everyone fell. What do you do with that? What you do with that is that you offer some different kind of path, right? Uh, a path towards redemption of getting better, uh, constantly trying to get better, knowing that you're going to be uh, fallible along the way. And regardless of sins of any particular church or anything like that, the approach of saying we are we are a fallen people. Can we can we get up in the morning and do a little bit better tomorrow? That's an important way to go through life, I think, and mm. and having some sense of shared humanity and of of appreciating people who are rich characters and not like cardboard cut out like Superman from the comic book kind of thing, or even Captain America from a comic book. Like when you're that perfect, you're boring, right? Mm -hmm. Like you should. Have I mean, it makes it more of a miracle. I don't know why I'm being religious all of a sudden because I'm not really. But like okay. I, there's something it's miraculous yeah. in, in people uh, doing great things who themselves have these deep flaws. And we, and that should be bottled and spread and celebrated uh, more so than like going on a flaw hunt and finding a way to, you know, put people in a box and then move on to the next target. It just it, it seems so fundamentally obvious to me, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's not obvious to me where the culture is going with that. So like I like I like all of this, and I, I have a question. There's some sort of line between recognizing that everyone is flawed and that they all have their defects, and on the other side, there's the the collective impulse to categorically condemn or praise everything. Like certain things, certain categories of people are are completely awful and contemptible, and others are entirely victims who are deserving of apologies and remuneration and all sorts of other things. Um, and, and all of the categorical stuff makes my skin crawl, as does the false equivalence of pretending that no one is sufficiently awful that we shouldn't address them. Um, but there's that, that balance in between that you were just describing. It can be hard to achieve that successfully, no? And in the kind of icon way, too, because, I mean, we're talking about King. Yeah. And we all joke that we don't want to talk about this story before we start talking. <laughs> because, you know, you know there, there's that's off limits, right? Sure. And, I mean, it would be uh, – this is exactly the same thing, but try going in to CPAC and even from a kind of right-wing uh, perspective, giving a talk on the failures, uh, conservative failures of Ronald Reagan. It's just it's not going to happen. It's going to be either sparsely attended or you're going to be booed lustily the whole time because hmm. we have these – these people, that's the one thing I think in that what you're saying is is true is one thing you're missing is those kind of you can't touch icons are um, 
uh, I don't like. You just made me realize that Donald Trump is going to come out against Reagan pretty soon, like within a year. Well, he I mean, part of his he part of his reshaping yeah. explicitly, yeah. but he has <laughs> he has said that you know he had his movement. It was fine, but ours is so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so much better. Yeah, it's beautiful. Although what did Reagan actually had make America yep, great again? That was his. Right? He did, yeah. yeah, which was obviously racist then. So we've been going for a little while. We should probably wrap up. I don't know anybody got parting shots. Closing sentiments, thoughts uh, on things that are awful and terrible that have not been discussed. Just one real quick note that I know Matt will particularly love. Uh, just saw that Gloria Steinem said that Bill de Blasio is the one male she would vote for. What? The one male? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, she, was, she, if she were to vote she, for a male. Didn't she vote for Bill Clinton before? And defend <clears throat> I, I believe she's talking about this oh, election. Now. Yeah. now. Uh, our friend, uh, this is my, uh, my parting shot, our friend Harry Siegel um, had a Pretty great piece in the Daily Beast, which is a hack, a left wing uh, website, <laughs> um, uh, about de Blasio uh, making the pretty well argued claim that yeah, de Blasio knows no one likes him and whatever, but he needs to cover up um, his legal defense fund for a series of campaign finance violations. And part of living in New York and having a bunch of seagulls sniffing around, mm. uh, and this is going <laughs> to this is going to hurt hurt de Blasio so much. We're going to see so much great. Siegel on de Blasio violence <laughs> while he's running here. It's a very good piece. And there's another one even also from today. I think uh, Eve Pizer uh, in New York Magazine <laughs> spent several days trying to find anyone to come on the record to say that they want Bill de Blasio, a New Yorker, to he come on the record. One. She found one. I think two. And, and they're both – after after several days, like being outside the YMCA where he goes to and, and asking everybody she knows and going on social media, the only two that she found were when she finally like gave up and begged the campaign, can you can you just send me anybody <laughs> that like you? And she found like two. And their, and their quotes were uh, also bananas. But uh, yeah, we're going to be in a really great anti-de Blasio journalism season. So does this this piece will give me the an understanding of why this man – thinks it's appropriate to run for office, despite the fact that he is almost certainly not going to win, that, that virtually no one would vote for him. Yeah, he's just going to get money to, to pay off uh, exactly. uh, legal defense for campaign finance violations. He, literally. <laughs> that, that's literally, <laughs> that's the yeah. grift. Yeah. yeah. Got it. He may right. just become president. It's quite a Just grift. like Donald Trump. Uh, probably not. Anything? Uh, Went ahead? I don't know. Finish your lunch? Though? I just, I'm going to finish my lunch and I'm going to just really meditate a little bit on on my experience in the American criminal justice system. Yeah. And maybe just get like a tat- prison tattoo on my neck. Yeah. Are you going to come out like uh, you have a choice? You're going to come out either like Nation of Islam or <laughs> Aryan Nation. That's That was good to be my thing. I'm shocked that you're not all ganged up. Or maybe you are. But I don't see any red or blue. There's no teardrop <laughs> tattoo. Yeah. We don't do colors anymore. <laughs> Changed all that. Yeah, I'm going to come out and I'm going to, next thing you know, I'm going to be looking straight down the barrel of a camera. Mm. Got a lot of practice doing it. Giving a great, great speech from the one place in Syria that has not been cleared by Assad's forces <laughs> with uh, Kalashnikov. Because in prison, I'm going to, I'm gonna think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go the other way. I think I'm going to wow. give. I think I'm going to give Islam a shot. Gang, gang. Yeah, we'll see. I, I mean, I'll come back. I mean, we'll. I, mean, I don't know. I can't promise anything, but yeah. it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's not like you haven't visited their uh, Facebook sites, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, was, that was an old one. And web traffic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm on some. I'm on some list. That's probably where they locked me up. Um, yeah, I'm good. All right. Cool. All right. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. <laughs>